0: Father, we thank you for all those this morning that we've seen already whose faces reminded us of your face, whose simple greeting was a little taste of your well done. Father, you are invisible, and yet you make yourself visible through the loving, gentle touch and kindness and acts of service from your church. And it's already been quite generous today and this week. And Lord, we want to be strengthened that we might comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received. Lord, we thank you for all of the water, the living water that's come to us from heaven by way of the Holy Spirit, through all sorts of circumstances, providential arrangements of blessings. Lord, really all we've done is Continue to walk on um, one brick after another that you've placed there. We didn't even find them. You just kept our eyes open. But you placed them there. You got us here today. And so now, Lord, we are before your presence, in front of your face, crying out for a refreshing, purifying, saving word from our King and Savior. Father, I know there are strugglers. I know there are people here who feel guilty and they feel dirty. I know there are people here who are hearing the accusation of the evil one, and we want them to hear the defense of Jesus Christ saying, I've forgiven you. We want them to hear the voice of God saying, I love you and you are my son and daughter. Father, calls them to believe the truth. That you'll forgive anything that's ever confessed to you. And that anyone who is in Jesus Christ is new and all the old is gone. Most of all, we thank you today, Lord, that you are coming back. And it could occur before the service is over. And we want to be ready, this service, to prepare our, our bodies, our minds, our hearts for the return of Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, I'll tell you, I've been working, you know, no doubt, I, you sort of know that I've been working on this message for many, many months and uh, cannot wait to get here. Now, last week, <clears throat> uh, we had a fantastic service here. We took a detour in the middle of the study of Zechariah to address the topic of uh, battling the foe of depression, and it is amazing. I. It was very cathartic for me and obviously for you to hear that. I've never received so many texts and emails uh, just let me know where you were in your walk with God. Um, Hallelujah for being transparent and honest. And even Friday night when I was at uh, Lake Kiwi with my buds, I got a text from one of our college students and said, hey, Richard, I wanted to let you know that I listened to your sermon last week, one on depression. I've listened to it every day this week. That's a broken heart. <clears throat> I've had a few rough weeks, and uh, your words have been so encouraging to me. Keep at it. Uh, I'm going to need some more encouragement on, on Sunday. So I, I'll tell you, there's nothing that will encourage you more than where we're headed in the Scripture uh, today. If you've not been with us for the past few weeks, uh, or you're brand new, I just met somebody, a uh, really, really tall human being I think he plays basketball at, at Wofford. If you're new uh, to Hope Point, for about a year now we've been studying the final 12 books of the Old Testament. They're called the Minor Prophets because they're short compared to other writings called the Prophets, but they're, they're not minor in their punch. Um, and we're at the number 11 of 12 of them, and they're, the book of Zechariah it has 14 chapters in it, so it's taken us a while to get through there and so the the purpose of the book of Zechariah was just to bring hope to discourage exiles. They've been away from their homeland between fifty and seventy years and they're back, but their whole city is in shambles and there's no place to live, no place to worship. It's really just a bunch of broken bricks. Sort of when people come back to a a city that got hit by a hurricane or or a tornado. And so they're very vulnerable, and they know that war is in the future, and they know that no surrounding nation wants them to rebuild. So they don't feel very good about about the future. And so in in the final three chapters of the book of Zechariah, God gives this prophet three chapters of encouragement for these exiles that are so discouraged, I would say even depressed. And so the final three chapters of the book of Zechariah in those chapters, he says, your Messiah is coming to deliver you from all evil. I know I was real close to getting an amen from you there. So we're talking about, for us as believers, the second coming of the Lord. And I know there are parts of the Bible in regard to the future. Theologians call that eschatology, but they're talking about the future things. That are that are not perfectly clear to everyone. You have one. You have a devout student of Scripture that believes this about uh, this interpretation of the future of the Lord, and then over here you have another devout uh, student of Scripture, and they believe something else. So, you know, when you look at these, you say, what are we to make of this reality that something that's so precious is not ever going to be completely agreed upon by devout believers? Well. W- then you have to find what do we agree upon when we look at eschatology, and that is we all agree that as the world comes to a close, there's going to be increasing uh, tension and animosity between the world and the believers, and it looks like that the world is going to wipe out the people of God, driven by the power of one called um, Antichrist, And whether you are reading the book of Zechariah or the book of Revelation, those are universally agreed upon um, gleanings. And so, sum it down. We agree on that, that this is the major teaching that God says, I want you to, I want you to always see when you're reading eschatological books of the Bible, always look for hope. That triumphs over calamity because Jesus is coming. That's, that's what you don't want to argue about. But when you come to Zechariah 12 through 14 to be to address those three chapters, you have to, if you say, Richard, we hired you because we want you to teach the scripture as it's laid out. You've said you wanted that for 15 years, then All of those chapters relate to the future of Israel in the end of times. So that is my obligation to the scripture and to the mandate that you have given me. And so if I were to say, well, I think I'll just not do that. I'll skip that. That means that almost every time I come to prophetic passages in the Old Testament in regard to Israel, I have to default to, I'm not going to address that. Because I don't know what the Bible has to say about Israel because it's so much. If I default and avoid Zechariah 12-14, through 14, I'm not going to be able to do much with Isaiah and all, Joel and all sorts of other books of the Bible. And so when we get done today, you may say, I don't agree with your interpretation. And, and people do that. I'm 57. I've heard that a lot. I don't agree with your interpretation of the end of times, and then I'll ask them, well, what's your interpretation? Well, I don't really have one. Then I say, well, I like mine better. But I will say it's so confusing that the Gospel Coalition, highly respected group of scholars, does not even have a statement regarding the millennium, the final thousand years of the reign reign of Christ, whatever. It's just a major eschatological belief. They don't even have a statement regarding the millennium, Uh, in their founding documents, and I say thumbs up. Good, because it's too controversial. It's not worth squabbling over. But I'm teaching on this. I can't finish the book without going through these three chapters. I have to say something. Um, And so here's what I want you to get out of this. These chapters should encourage endurance, as we look to the return of Jesus Christ, it should encourage sanctification as you prepare for his return which could be this afternoon. Be ready. Had a girl cutting my hair a few weeks ago and she says the return scares me. I said it shouldn't. It should thrill you he's coming back to reward those who are hungry for his Don't be scared by the return of Christ, but I'm going through these three chapters for three reasons. Number one, it's going to be good for me to find out what I'm about to say. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be good for me to stretch. And all we can stretch is to, you don't really know anything until it's time to teach it. Everybody's got a pen. You. It's going to be good for you to stretch. You say, mm, hadn't thought about that. Didn't see that. So be, stretch you. And the third reason is because um, of a Gospel Coalition conference that took place in uh, Orlando in April of 2015. And when I was listening to the speaker, sort of guess, John Piper, he was speaking on an eschatological end times, futuristic passage in the Old Testament, major like Washington Monument type, Eiffel Tower type passage, Isaiah 11. I was so relieved when he said this. And I'm sort of the fulfillment of what he was talking about that day. I mean, you know, I'm just saying. So you'll see what I mean. I, and I just, I remembered, you know, guys normally remember worthless things. Like, I remember that golf shot back in 1984. Remember, you remember when Tiger hit that shot on number seven? Well, ever so often, guys remember more than golf shots and who was at the plate in the World Series, whatever. I remembered this quote, went and dug it up. This is really my heart of why I'm teaching this today. <clears throat> this is what Piper said in Orlando. Many in my generation of evangelicals have held dispensational eschat- eschatological chart drawing in such derision that we have been virtually paralyzed, like nobody's teaching on anything. In our study of prophecy, for two generations perhaps, like twenty years, nobody's said anything. For two generations, perhaps, we have failed to study prophecy with any with anything like the rigor that it deserves. We have been so afraid of being viewed as one of those Zionist right wing antichrist sniffing alarmist leftovers from the Schofield <laughs> Prophecy Conference era that we give hardly any energy to putting the prophetic pieces together. So my prophecy that day in Orlando, my prophecy is that younger evangelicals, and I guess that's the only place he missed it because I'm probably on like his age. So that my prophecy is that younger evangelicals who take the Bible seriously will start to feel... uh, Like the paralysis of my generation was an overreaction to prophetic studies and they will write more worship songs, Hunter, like we're ending with today. About the second coming and younger scholars will be unintimidated, like I am today, unintimidated by the academic scorn of futuristic possibilities. So, Sort of diving into this, and God doesn't want me to be. He wants me to learn, but not to be intimidated. Zechariah is an intimidating book. I've been working on it for months and months. But many people are asking, "How does the world end? And what happens to the end of? Uh, what happens to Israel at the end of time?" Zechariah 12 through 14 has some very, very insightful uh, comments about that. I'm not much for outlines Uh, on many occasions. I think outlines sometimes satisfy the speaker. Like I gave you this fancy outline and like, well, actually you did nothing for me. I just sort of bored me. But sometimes outlines at least give you a barn in which about to build everything. So here's sort of a, um, here's sort of an outline. Um, Here's sort of an outline uh, for what Zechariah 12 through 14 will cover. It talks about the siege of Israel that's coming, the shielding, how it's going to be protected, the sorrow of Israel, and the, the salvation of Israel. Now, let me tell you something. When you look at this, I, I say this is an outline, but it's not linear. Like, Western minds like you and I have, we like for things to go A, B, C, D, E. Mm. That's not the way the prophets write the prophets, sometimes they'll write with the end of the story and say, we win. God's people. And that's, that's how it starts off in Zechariah 12. It ends with the end. Then he goes back in chapters 13 and 14 and tells how he won. So I think Zechariah writes in a non-linear way to encourage people because they like, we're going to get sleepy during church. So he goes and tells you how it's going to end I'm not going to do that. I'm just telling you, we're going to cover those four, but you I, I, you got to go toward the end of the book to get that out to make that outline work. Like end of the book, Zechariah 14 is where you look at the siege of Israel when they're attacked. Zechariah 14: A day of the Lord has come in Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations. To Jerusalem. Like right now, there's two hundred and thirty-six nations in the world. They're all coming. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured. And there's some elements of warfare that are described about what's going to happen there that it's just I don't think it's fitting for I just can't do it. I can't read it Sunday morning settings. It's but it's what happens with warfare. So again something for the sake of time and the clock we can't do, but just to alert you, if you read these three chapters, these are all eschatological chapters, futuristic chapters, Revelation 9, 16, 17, and then Ezekiel 38. These describe in Scripture where all the nations are coming from against Jerusalem, and you can read that, and they all come from northeast, southwest, all the way from China to Europe, Russia, down. It's covered in those three chapters, but it's a global anti-Israel coalition with devastating power enough that in Zechariah 13, see how he skips all over the place, verse 8, look, how, look what's going to happen. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds of Israel will be struck down and perish. So two-thirds of everybody in Israel in the times will die. This is a terrible battle. It's the last battle. It's the final battle. It's the great battle. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perished, yet one-third will be left in it. So Zechariah 12 through 14, those three chapters, allow us to see what's going to happen to Israel in the end times, and only a third of the nation Survives this future great battle. And I think if you would be sort of observant of the news now, we never know when the Lord is going to return, but I think you will see. You know, I I think the Lord would have us to always be ready. I I mean, I can't think that that would be a good thing for me to say. I think you probably can take four months off from God. I think it should always be ready. So I think when you see what you see now, worldwide, global escalation, escalation of, 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 of hatred of the, of the state of Israel's existence, more than ever. Now, you, don't, you won't hear people say, I hate Jews, Like, no anti Semitic statements, but I think you will hear, like, from North Korea, Iran, Syria we prefer, we plan for the total annihilation of Israel, and it doesn't even seem to get much drawback when they say it. It's like it's an accepted statement when huge world powers make anti Israel, anti state of Israel. Statements. From a geopolitical standpoint, Israel does look in the sense of world against it very vulnerable. But remember the book of Zechariah is for the purpose of encouragement. Where's the encouragement? Go back to the chapter fourteen and look at the, the, the use of the uh, of the phrase I will to remind you of who's in charge of this. Zechariah 14, 2, I will, this is the Lord speaking, I will gather, I will, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. And then if you look at the phrase, I will, and look how many times it's used in these three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, over and over again, God says, what's happening in the end of days is of me. I'm directing this play. God is sovereignly guiding all of these events. He's controlling the future of the world. And that's why when people ask, you know, Richard, do you think that the world Sunday is going to be destroyed by some meteor hitting the planet and us blowing up? No. That's how it's coming to an end. God gathering the nations. God is the one who will bring the world to its conclusion. No haphazard, he's sovereignly doing it. And look, here's how we know he can do it. Zechariah 12:1, The Lord who stretches out the heavens. I enjoyed such a beautiful day enjoying the heavens and the earth on Lake Kiwi yesterday. And, and this is God who made it. And somebody else sent me a beautiful picture. They were on another part of Kiwi yesterday, and they were enjoying it too. The Lord who stretches out the heavens. And then Rick Higgins sent me a beautiful picture this week. I think he was out in Wyoming, enjoying the heavens and the earth. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the human spirit within a person. So here, we know that God can bring history to an end because God brought history into existence. That's why it's a very easy thing for, this, for God to, to guide all of these forces. That's why when I'm talking to you today, nobody can say, you've got to be kidding that you would believe this. Do you believe in creation? Ra! God spoke and it all happened. If you believe in creation, he can begin it. You believe that he can end it. I think it's a lot easier for him to end it, like in Zechariah twelve through through fourteen, than for him to be looking into a bag of nothing, and you got a hundred billion galaxies later. So the God who creates is the God who ends. So God is doing it, but remember, God always works through. God always works through. Things, circumstances, people, forces. And who does God work through in the end of times? He works through the evil forces of Antichrist and the people on earth that he fuels with pride, anger, rage that believe in their overconfident abilities that they can destroy Israel. And so that's described in Revelation 16. So when you're in Zechariah 12 through 14, what you're reading about, the battle there in Zechariah 12 through 14 is the battle in Revelation 16. And this is, there in, so this is the means by which God is gathering together the world forces. He's just letting them be completely controlled by demonic Possession. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. And then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So Zechariah 12 through 14 is talking about Revelation 16 and Revelation 16 We know that, Battle of Armageddon. It's from a Hebrew word. He even tells us because that's the area in Zechariah 12 through 14. Armageddon is simply a Hebrew word which means har, H-A-R, har, mountain, Megiddo, the mountains of Megiddo. It's going to take place on the plains of Megiddo. Let's just look at your map. That's where it's going to happen. That's what Zechariah 12 through 14 says. It's just we get the name the Battle of Armageddon from not from Zechariah 12 through 14, but Revelation 16. So we said there's going to be a siege against Israel, and then there's going to be this great shielding. So it looks like Israel's about to be doomed, and then God shows up. Somebody told me this week, what a quote. Don't give up five minutes before the miracle. Wow. Wow. Don't give up five minutes before the miracle. I wonder how many people, I, I mean, we talked about that this, this weekend with my buds, people who, I mean, and we're all sort of can understand that with sympathy, but I'll just, maybe that's worth why you should, came to, should come to church today. Don't give up five minutes before the miracle. So God's going to send a defense. That's described in Zechariah 12 3. On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All try to move it, will injure themselves. It's sort of funny. I mean, it's just humorous. Like I'm trying to pick up this big rock, and I get a hernia. It's except it's more graphic language. It literally in Hebrew means I will herniate myself, I will tear, I'll injure, I will rip. Something from its joint, from its bone, trying to lift it, I will hurt myself. And then God goes on with how he's going to defend Jerusalem. On that day, verse 4, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a... This is beautiful right here. I will keep a watchful eye over Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. So this is pretty much... Um, just an announcement that no matter what weaponry that is involved at this time, 21st century, 31st century, it's not going to work. God's going to produce panic. Sophisticated people, sophisticated weaponry trying to come down on Jerusalem and God is going to frustrate it and produce really a panic. And the Bible says God's going to do it In that day. It's very interesting. In Zechariah 12 through 14, 16 times, God uses the phrase, in that day, which is a way of saying, this is my day. Anytime you see in Scripture, in that day, it's God saying, this is my day. I've let you have your day. I've let you parade sin for 21 centuries. I've let you curse my name. I've let you laugh at my son. I have let you kill my church. But in that day, I will. 16 times in that day, I will. There will be a day where God says, no more. Verse 8, on that day, the Lord will shield those, shield those who live in Jerusalem, so the feeblest among them will be like David. Now, I love this because there was not a greater, more courageous warrior in all of the Bible than Israel's Greatest king, King David. And here the Bible says that every man in Israel during this time will have the strength and courage of King David. Now that is cool. Wow, an entire nation of Davids. I mean, somehow he's going to supernaturally strengthen all of them so they can defend themselves. But God will be the ultimate defender. God will be the ultimate defender. Look what he says in verse 9. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. Now, what are all these nations thinking? Me and my power and my strength, we are coming. Jerusalem, you know, 50 miles wide, 300 miles long. I mean, Israel. We are coming, we're just going to be so easy to wipe out this country. I mean, we got all the nations of the world aiming their guns at Israel. This is going to be done in a day. It's going to be so easy. And God, in that moment, says, Actually, the purpose, the reason that I have allowed you to have all of this confidence. I have gathered all the rebellious nations of the world in one place, that in that one place I can destroy all of them at one time. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. So God's purpose of allowing Israel to be attacked is to assemble all the attackers for his Destruction. And as a result, this is is why we needed to teach this today. As a result, Israel is going to know for the first time in history who defended them. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, The people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. And this is what it's all about. They have missed Him from the beginning when God called them to be a nation belonging to Him, and now with this overwhelming victory when all the nations were coming against them, it's going to dawn on them that all of these promises in Scripture that God is their Father and Protector. And this is going to be the first thing. This military victory is going to be the first thing that begins the conversion of the nation of Israel to Jesus Christ. This military victory. This is how God gains the, an attention. Tell me what else He could do. I mean, He's done everything else for them. Now it's going to save them when it looked like it was going to be totally, total annihilation. Everybody's going, to, everybody's going to know it is the Lord. Now, you say, well, how are they going to figure it out? Well, he's going to make it obvious. Let me, tell you, let, me tell you, let me tell you how they are not going to miss it. You say, well, Israel's missed it before. I mean, you've missed the obvious before, haven't you? Let me tell you how Israel is not going to miss that this is of God. He's going to make sure they don't miss it. He's coming himself. Zechariah 14.3, then the Lord will go out. Now, this is. I mean, David's cool. But your little David's cool. But I'd rather have Jesus. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, and as he fights on the day of battle. And here it comes, this is why it was so worth getting through Zechariah. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. East of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two. From east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half. Moving south. Wow. And this is where, you know, if we were sitting around a room and there would be a debate, somebody'd say, I don't believe that's literal. I don't think Jesus is going to actually come back, return, stand on the Mount of Olives, and it splits. And again, we love each other so we can pick on each other. We can laugh together. I would ask those who say it doesn't, literally, what does it mean then that when Jesus returns, everybody's going to be eating olives? I mean, really, what is the alternate other than what it says? Jesus comes back and stands on the Mount of Olives and it splits. Because he's God. Can I ask you a question? This is standing right here on the Mount of Olives looking over Jerusalem. If Jesus Christ were to come back today, and you were on the Mount of Olives, would, you, would he count you as one of his own? Are you ready to meet the Lord? Are you ready to meet Christ? Is everything in your life said, I'm ready to meet Christ? I want you to be ready to meet Christ. He wants you to be ready to meet him. Man, what a joy it would be to, to be standing to see Jesus Christ. You know, it's funny when people say, I just don't believe that literally can happen. I, there are so many ways to approach this. Let me, let me just give you one. You remember when Jesus, after his crucifixion and resurrection, he stayed with the disciples about 50 days and, and then he ascended. You can read this in Acts 1 12, and 13. Let's see. I, I think I got some. Yeah, there, 11 and 12. Acts 1. You remember he ascended back to heaven where he's been ever since? Do you remember where he ascended from? The Mount of Olives. And do you remember what the angels said to him? To the, what they said to the disciples? This Jesus that, uh, that just left your sight, he's coming back in the same way. What's that mean? <laughs> he's coming back, Literally. I wonder where he would, his favorite place would be. I would think the place he left from Mount of Olives. Okay, 1054. Okay, I've, I'm going to. All right, I told you Revelation 16 was Armageddon. Let me tell you, I want to take you one more place in Revelation what the battle looks like when Jesus comes back to the Mount of Olives. This is, because I know you don't read Revelation much, so I've alerted you to two big chapters. This is Revelation 19. This is what the battle of Armageddon looks like from like a, few, a drone point of view. <laughs> Revelation 19, I saw heaven standing open. This is Armageddon. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, Easy to figure out who that is.